Today's episode is brought to you by the new Yelp for Restaurants. In July 2020, hundreds of hospitality professionals and enthusiasts at Yelp banded together to create a new team dedicated entirely to the betterment of restaurants. Check out our latest project together, the Restaurant Marketing School podcast at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash marketing school or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here we go. People, they used to ask me like, did you know you would have like 50 or 100 locations when you started? And I was like, yeah, because that was the design intention. We weren't trying to do a one-off restaurant. We were trying to do a brand. So it's all about your vision and then your execution on that vision. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post is launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. Sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you'll check it out. Our industry is chocked full of one-hit wonders. Innovators that are able to capture lightning in a bottle, but only once. Many of us dream of a culinary empire that spans locations around the globe. What I've been trying to figure out is what enables some folks to achieve this dream while so many of us fail in the pursuit. Today we chat with Adam Fleischman, a self-taught chef that created and scaled both Umami Burger and 800 Degree Pizza worldwide. We unpack the mindset and the strategy that enabled him to grow these businesses to global proportions. It was in the early to mid 90s, I was still living in Washington DC and basically I was home doing a lot of research and writing. So I figured I would teach myself how to cook and was crappy all through the nineties and learned how to cook and then moved to LA and went into the wine business here. I had two of the early wine bars in LA. We had food and I saw that we had this great chef, Jason Travi. Do you remember him? I do remember Jason. Yeah. And he would literally stand at a block. We had no kitchen and he had a panini machine and a cheese case. And he would turn out this incredible food. And I was like, wow, you really don't need a lot to do food. So when the economy crashed in 2008, I decided to jump from wine to food. And I found a really cheap space and opened for almost nothing. Now, let's talk about that. Because in doing a bunch of research for the interview, I found you to be this dude that bucks convention at every turn. Is that how you would describe yourself? Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, if something's not differentiated, I usually won't do it. Well, but I mean, even from an ideological perspective, you know, in the hospitality industry, we worship the grind. Everybody wants to talk about hustle and near disaster. And I was reading this article, you were quoted as saying it took about five minutes to create the first umami burger recipe and a little longer than that to create the first restaurant concept. Why was it so easy for you? Because I'm coming at it from a conceptual and philosophical place. And when you look at it from that, it's pretty easy to see what needs to happen. And then by then I had the cooking chops. 
2009 is when I started Umami, so I'd had 15 years of solid cooking. So if the concept clicks, usually the food will click too. So, What is that philosophical a, position? It's palate memory, having like an encyclopedia palette of every flavor so that when you combine them conceptually, you don't really have to come from a cooking background. You can just kind of figure out what's going to work. And then how does that translate into an overall menu offering? Is there any focus on product market fit? No. I tend to pick products that work at every market. So I did pizza, burgers. I did all different basic concepts that people liked. And right now I'm doing Mexican food. So I'm starting over again with a new concept that, again, it took me like five minutes to come up with the food. It's more elaborate than the first umami because I got a great space and we're going to have a bar and we're going to have cocktails and all that good stuff. Is there foresight? Are you analyzing trends? Why burgers? Why pizza? Well, the burger trend was massive back then and there were no gourmet burgers really at that time except for uh, Father's Office, which was more of a bar and they wouldn't let kids in. So I said, hey, why don't I do a gourmet burger place with 10 different gourmet burgers instead of one? And... That's where the fit, that's where the needs seem to be. Same with the pizza. I looked around, there was no wood-burning pizza at the time. There was a huge gap in the market there. The only one doing wood-burning pizza was Moza, and they do their own style, and it's a little more exclusive and expensive, so it was almost like, let's bring pizza to the masses. So we opened 800 Degrees in Westwood, and people were like, whoa, I've never had wood-burning pizza before. Well, but it's also, it's not just a product, it's a process. Like you were able to supply someone with like a personalized pizza in what mm-hmm. is it, like five minutes, six minutes, three minutes, three, three minutes. I mean, it speaks to the point that whether it's subconscious or not, there's got to be some thought process involved. And even when you look at umami, it's a fast, casual concept, but it's almost, I know you coined the phrase fine, casual. There's a restaurant-esque environment, and yet the food comes out quickly. Right. So that's kind of the sweet spot is that people want speed and they want less decision-making power. The places that have the giant menus, like your old-time casual dining places, like your Bennigan's and your Ruby Tuesdays, those are not working because people don't want to spend 20 minutes deciding. They want to go in and say, this is what you get here. Get it and do it. So all my concepts are focused like that, generally. We take away a lot of that pressure and we're fast. And yeah, that's our niche between fast food and fast casual. I mean, fast casual to me hasn't worked out perfectly because a lot of the places like Chipotle are kind of lumped in the fast food because they're just not like something you'd go out of your way for. They don't have that buzz. They're not winning like culinary awards or anything. So I see the fine casual is really where stuff's really blowing up. And you can see a ton of concepts have opened since COVID that are sort of fine casual in burgers and pizza, hand rolls. There's a ton of them out there. That seems to be where everyone's focused right now. Well, it seems to be at the very least like the most accessible sector that you can pivot into all sorts of different revenue streams. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You're such an interesting guy. Really, you're a chef that isn't classically trained and you're a restaurateur in like a very unconventional sense. You don't really enjoy restaurant operations. Mm -mm. So why hospitality? 
the creative part of it is what gets me excited. So, And there's a lot of creativity. Even the yeah. design elements, when you look at like 800 degree pizza or umami, they're different. It's just, it's a different vibe. Yeah. No, I'm totally a design. My house is really designed and I tend to relish that part of the design aspect of it. The creativity of the food, writing a menu, coming up with new products that people may not have had before. You do a movie, which is creative, and it takes two years and then you have to see whether people like it or not. Sometimes they don't like it for another two years, but in food, you kind of get that instant gratification. Like within three months, you know, like people love to tell you, oh, this was amazing or this was terrible. You'll get a very clear sense right away. So there's that instant gratification that you don't get from writing a novel or doing a movie. Where did your education come from in terms of operating the business? Great food is great and great process is great, but great business really seems to be a linchpin in the way that if someone was to ask me what caused the failure of our industry, it's that there are these foundational business practices that most people just don't ascribe to in our industry. Mm. Yet not only were you able to use it to create a successful singular unit, you were able to do it to scale. And it wasn't a fluke because you did it again. Mm. And now you're doing it again, <laughs> right? This one's going to be the best one, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just learned on the job. Like when I did, I had no experience. So when we started Umami, when you're doing one location, you can kind of run things yourself. So I was overseeing the food. There wasn't much service to be had. As we grew, we hired managers to run like three or four locations that did a pretty good job. But then when you decide to scale even more, then you need a whole new set of people. And that's kind of when we partnered with SBE and they gave us $20 million and we were able to leverage their management, which was a lot more sophisticated. So it was an iterative process. And I think that was 11, 12 years ago. Now, after 11 or 12 years of doing this, and I did red medicine and I did smoke oil salt, doing different types of restaurants, you get a really good sense of how to manage it, what you need, that type of thing. How does continuum physics play into the corporate strategy? It plays into everything, but basically what continuum physics says is that the way that you handle your concept into execution from everything to the planning to the emotional aspect to the certain steps you take are what creates the outcome of a successful brand or not. So to give you an example, a lot of people, they get a space and they're very focused on the materiality of that space. And they say, oh, we could just change this and change that and serve this same food and whatever and open, but it doesn't have a piece of their emotion in it. And I think those are the ones that don't really resonate with people because when you walk into a restaurant, it's like walking into a movie. You can feel the vibe of the situation and whether you're going to submit or not. And I think it keeps people from submitting when there's not enough emotional investment in it. Whereas when you walk into a place that's incredibly emotionally invested, trying to think of an example here in LA, well, one of my favorite restaurants, Dama, which is downtown. When you walk into that environment, you see great service and great product and great food and great bar. It resonates in a way, even though their location is tough and tricky, you have a great experience because of the way they not only conceptualize, but the way they integrated themselves into their business. In practice, so how did you practice. do that 
Well, when I did it with a mommy and 800 and this new one, it's like I'm completely emotionally invested because I'm trying to reinvent a familiar food. So I'm taking a food that everyone knows and trying to completely turn it on its head. No one had ever put truffles or Parmesan on a burger before a mommy. And I was trying to do all things completely different. I was trying to make it focused like in and out, but I was trying to make it more variety. And I was trying to have different types of drinks. And we were one of the first to do this Mexican Coke. And then we have alcohol. It was rethinking every part of it and being emotionally invested in all those decisions. And that's what continuum physics does is it samples the subjectivity of the creators to get the objective qualities of the guest. It's not something like a paint by numbers. Like you see a lot of these Harvard MBA guys, they come out and they're like, oh, we'll take this element from this restaurant and we'll make it like Chipotle style and we'll make grilled cheese or whatever. They kind of do a paint by numbers restaurant. I'm not saying the concept is bad. I mean, the concept could work if David Chang was making it, but it doesn't resonate because it doesn't have the passion in the actual space and the concept that you would really want to feel. So it begs the question, is your success formulaic? Are you doing the same things over and over and over again? And if so, can I get a step one through five? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much doing the same things over and over again. I mean, obviously I took some other risks that didn't pay off like fine dining and stuff like that, but the industry was moving away from fine dining big time at that point. Yeah. I mean, the first step is to me is conceptual. It's like, what do you want to eat? What do you want to see? What kind of feel do you want? So you envision it. And then the second step would be putting it into action. So finding a place, assume no investors to find a place that's dirt cheap, that is basically free and go cook all the food and write all the menus and then do it as a real grassroots thing. Like open up, emotionally invested, owners on site. Look, I always talk about like Wolfgang Puck. Is he the greatest chef ever? Probably not. But he was always there at his places all the time, like every single time. And that made a huge difference. That's like marketing People see this guy and he's having fun and he's not like angry and he's like flipping desserts and stuff and people get excited. So after the conceptual, you negate that for the actual, which is running the restaurant and making great food and kind of putting your conceptual to the side, but still being like super emotionally invested in what you're doing and creating a sense of exclusivity and devotion, no matter what the concept is. And just forging ahead with that. And then when you're successful with one, everything starts with one and one customer at a time. You got to win every customer individually. And when you do that and you say, now I'm going to scale, you go back to your original position and say, okay, what was my brand vision? And hopefully you've already come up with a brand vision that is scalable like Umami 800 where things are designed to scale. People, they used to ask me like, did you know you would have like 50 or 100 locations when you started? I was like, yeah, because that was the design intention. We weren't trying to do a one-off restaurant. We were trying to do a brand. So the first one may not have been the best one, and it definitely wasn't. But by the 10th one, they were good. So it's all about your vision and then your execution on that vision. And people fall down on both of those equations. That was going to be my next question is, where do you see your path diverging from the I mean, what do we see? Like an 80% failure rate of independent restaurants in the first three years. What common mistakes do you see people make that you avoid it? 
Well, the main one being doing it for the wrong reasons, seeing it as sort of a money-making enterprise. I always say like, if you're getting into food to make money, you probably won't. And if you're getting into food to not make money because you're so passionate about the food, you might make money. So I think that's the 20% there, the ones that are really passionate about what they do. And then you just have to worry about whether there's a disconnect between your product and people like, I don't know, Filipino food was hot for a while. I don't know if there's that much appetite for a lot of Filipino restaurants, Korean restaurants. I mean, there's a million, but they're all the same sort of concept. They're not super creative. I mean, a couple of them are, but 99% of them are like family type places. So the failure comes from how you see yourself and your restaurant position in the greater culinary world. And if it's something that's really niche, you got to make it really special. And if it's something that's a commodity, like a Korean restaurant, you got to make it really consistent and really affordable. Looking at the last couple of years, obviously you have Titans like 800 Degrees and Umami, but you also have these other brands, these newer brands, PBJ, Colcock, Heroic Daily, Sourtooth. How has the pandemic affected your plans for those concepts? Well, those concepts were pretty new and it affected them in the sense that they couldn't really fully open. Sourtooth ran its course. It was more of a pop-up. It wasn't designed to be permanent, though it might have been had the pandemic not happened. And so basically, I spent the last year waiting out the pandemic, coming up with new stuff, doing lots of cooking. And it's a waiting game. We got to wait it out and then come back strong. We can't just keep opening and closing and doing those types of things. So the pandemic definitely put a damper on things. But PBJ and Heroic, are they do some delivery and stuff. So they're pretty well positioned. They're not like major domo or something where it's like on-premise only, blah, 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 when you really get screwed. Or Tega Louie has been closed the whole year. They're not dependent like that, but this pandemic was something you have to really wait out and plan your next move very carefully because I don't see all these restaurants coming back. Any revelations due to the pandemic that would inspire you to do business differently? Like over the last year, I thought about this, I saw this happen, and this is how it's adjusted my plans? Not in the food space. I mean, for other space, for other plans, not in food. But in food, no, I still see the main, the original sort of proposition as valid, which is over-deliver, make something affordable that everyone likes, and do it great. So that hasn't changed. That's what I'm doing with my new brand. I have a couple other projects on the back burner that would be good, but I'm not like super pressed to do them. The center where cold cocked was in completely like the whole center closed. So that they let me out of my lease and starting that up again would be a great thing. I have another concept that's like an Asian concept that I'd like to do, but I'm going to do this one, the Mexican style one first and see how that goes. What opportunities do you see out there post-pandemic for yourself with lease rates and kind of this re-envisioning of the landlord-tenant relationship, all of the available real estate? What opportunities do you see for you and for restaurateurs generally? For me, it's people call and say, take over the space and just pay the rent. So you're getting a lot of free stuff and you're getting free licenses and you're getting free equipment, which is what I did. But other restaurants... I'm not too sure. I mean, if you have a name like yourself, you'll get calls. If you're a brand new person who's never done one, you can call up and maybe if your idea is really cool and the landlord likes it or cook them dinner or whatever, you might get a good deal. 
and certainly things are not going up. They're pretty low. Downtown has had a big reset. And in Beverly Hills and West Hollywood, even, I've seen stuff going down. But you know, the best spaces will tend to hold their value after the pandemic, your big, fancy spaces. But I don't know, there's not a lot of operators for those. There's a great space downtown. It's on Spring. It was called Spring. It's a gorgeous space. And it's like... Stunning, stunning space. That's right around Second Street. Yeah. Yeah, stunning. And it's been sitting there with the old sign for way before the pandemic started, like 2019. So there's a glut of big, fancy spaces. The space where Bouchon was, as far as I know, didn't open, nothing else open there. I don't think there's a lot of operators anymore that have an appetite to take a 10,000 square foot restaurant because of how expensive it is to operate them. And those risks seem overwhelming to me. Like, I can't think of one chef that could pull that off right now. Well, you're also looking at different dynamics, right? Like with the introduction of retail and takeout and delivery, the question is, if you could run a three point, like me as an example, if you could run a $3.2 million restaurant at a 6,000 square feet in 2019, can I do that $3.2 million out of 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 square feet in 2021? I mean, yeah, better off doing that than having six or 10,000 square feet where it's going to completely delever your whole operations because you're going to have to have so much staff and so many servers. And I still think there's a place for being waited on. I don't think everything should be fast casual, but you just got to be really careful about that. Like one good thing to do is like a pop-up tasting counter. You see a lot of people doing that. That's great because you get the fine dining experience without the table costs and the overhead. Mm-hmm. Remember Wool's Mouth? Like Wool's Mouth started yeah. that. And it was amazing. It was amazing. So that's the type of thing I think that's still really valid. Doing like a hybrid, like a butcher shop, like Alvin did over in Chinatown with the burgers and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. Kind of diversify your thing. The Chinese places down there seem to be doing really well. How and Ray's, I think, is still closed, maybe. I'm not sure. I have not been over there, but they were doing great. cranking. Oh, good. Good. It would be surprising to me if he opened and wasn't cranking after the lines they had before. So that's a good business. They were the first. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there's 30 other hot chicken places, including five in my neighborhood, but (laughs) they were first. So they get the golden cookie for being first and best. So it's a minefield. And I don't recommend it to anyone. I mean, it's really something that unless you're so overwhelmingly passionate about it, like I am, then I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it at all. And I've gotten into bar stuff, so I'm going to open a bar where the cocktails are all unique and original and pretty incredible. So that's happening. That's what I was going to ask. What are your goals for 2021? What are your plans? Open a bar, open a restaurant, see how they do. And that's really it. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the restaurateurs and chefs listening. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to offer? I mean, I'm always encouraging for people, but I'm also realistic about it. And back in 2009, you know, it was go-go and everyone was opening tons and tons of stuff. And I think it got oversaturated. So I would really just look at your concept and say, is there really a need for this concept in the marketplace? Check on your timing. I mean, a few people have done it. Some retail brands have done it. Like you have the produce delivery guys, the imperfect produce, like their timing was great. They were coming up right as the pandemic hit. And now 
people can get food delivered and just it's timing, but it's also having the right concept for this age. But it's very tricky because most things have been done. LA is a huge market, a lot of restaurants and a lot of things have been done. I was just in Mexico and you can't find good pizza or fried chicken or burgers there. So that seems to me like a great market. I was in a city of 20 million people and I couldn't even find fried chicken or pizza. But in LA, we got it all and we lack nothing. So it's kind of a crapshoot. That's Adam Fleischman. For more on Adam's concepts, check out the links in our show notes. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.